0: I want to help you this morning, I want to try to teach you this morning, I want us to look at why Paul the Apostle wrote to the church at Colossae. I want to help you understand the historic context of this letter and the immediate benefit of this letter for us. This letter was written to the church at Colossae and it was also intended to be read to the church at Laodicea. And I believe it's also intended to be read here at the church in Ada. It is for us as well as it was for them. It was given to us by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul for our edification and for our protection. I'll give you a little outline if you didn't pick up the bulletin. This is basically the outline. It's an introductory outline. In this letter, we learn about three things primarily. In this letter, we learn about, number one, Paul's purpose. For writing the letter to the Colossians. We see a purpose statement all throughout the first chapter. We also learn in this letter about the problem in the church at Colossae. This is a universal problem. It became a universal problem. We're still dealing with the problem. And in this letter, thirdly, we learn how to prevent the problem in our church today. In our time today. What I want to do is basically just go through these three points and try to look at each one and and discuss some of the, again, historic context behind these points and the immediate benefits of knowing this context for us as a church. Um, These letters were written for our edification and for our protection. We will forever need these letters until Christ comes to guide us and direct us and These problems will still come back to haunt us because of man's fallenness. So let's begin by looking at, number one, the the purpose. The purpose for writing this letter. It's it's actually kind of described in, in a cursory way, in a prayer, in Colossians 1, 3 to 10. Colossians 1, 3 to 10. Here we see Paul's purpose or his desire, his reasoning for writing this letter to the Colossians. Let's look what it says here. Beginning in verse 3, Paul writes We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Basically, Paul says in this introductory prayer, here's the reason I wrote this letter to you. You have a faithful minister who loves you, and he shared with me a problem that's now entering into the church there at Colossae, the church that God planted through this faithful minister, Epaphras. There were men coming into the church misleading the Christians, teaching that to become holy or righteous or being blessed by God. You had to follow their rituals, their rules, their legalistic traditions. And I love how Paul writes this in this, this, this first introductory prayer. basically says, the gospel is producing fruit in your church just like everywhere else. He didn't say rituals are producing fruit. Legalism is producing fruit. He says, After you heard the truth, that is the gospel, fruit began to bear. Matter of fact, Epaphras himself was part of the fruit of the gospel. We believe that that Epaphras probably heard the Apostle Paul preaching in Ephesus and was saved under that preaching. Then Epaphras carried that gospel message back to his hometown of Colossae. And there God planted a church through this faithful minister's preaching of the good news. And that good news transformed Epaphras into a faithful minister brought forth fruit. It brought forth this kind of fruit. Epaphras traveled 1,300 miles to find Paul to share with him the concerns he had at Colossae. 1,300 miles by foot. He traveled to Rome to find Paul, he traveled all around to get to the Apostle Paul and tell him about what was going on in this small church and seek his help. That's the fruit of the gospel. Rituals and traditions didn't make him do that. A love for Christ and his people compelled him to do this. I think Paul sums up his purpose there, even in verse 10. This is his prayerful desire for them. He wants them to be holy. Holy. He wants them to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And it's really telling you how you are going to bear fruit by increasing in the knowledge of God, not by doing things like traditions and rituals and rites. Okay. He's trying to encourage them. He's trying to encourage us by showing us how we are made holy in this letter through Christ alone. And how we are to maintain holiness through Christ alone. That's the purpose of this letter. The purpose of this letter is for us to focus on Christ's accomplishments, not our accomplishments, to maintain our walk with God. The false teachers were focusing on what we would do. To make us right with God or to maintain a right relationship with God. Or, as you hear today in so many pulpits, this is what you need to do so that God will bless you and make you prosperous and happy and wealthy and healthy. This kind of teaching is still here today. It's just morphed. It's taken on new names. Health, wealth, prosperity doctrine. The false teachers of Paul's day are multitude of multitude false teachers today broadcast all over the world and they speak not against Christ but they devalue Christ by elevating man's work man's necessity to do these things to have a blessed life rather than focusing on Jesus and that's that's a sideways attack on Jesus is what that is in Colossians Paul teaches us that a desire For holiness and purity and goodness will flow out of a heart that has been regenerated and amazed by the work of Christ and Christ alone. See, that's that's the gist of our sanctification. Sanctification comes out of us as an expression of worship and thanksgiving and as the fruit of the seed that was planted in us by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. A desire for holiness does not come through following rituals or rules or religious traditions of men. No, that's, that's a desire for men to praise you for your outward performances. It's not the inward desire that we have, that the Christian has for holiness. I want to be right. I want to be pure. I want to follow God because of what he's done for me. The legalist, the, the ritualistic person, the religious Person, he wants to do what looks right so that others will praise him, admire him, look up to him, speak well of him. I love the Apostle Paul because he really didn't care what anybody thought about him except Jesus. Because he loved Jesus so much, he did so much. He said he did all more than all the other apostles. He, did, he wasn't bragging, he was simply saying, I, I just. I'm just compelled by the love of Christ to give my life for him. That's what a right doctrine about Jesus will produce in every regenerated Christian. We'll forget about ourselves as we follow Christ. That's the purpose of this letter. It's to help us forget about us and focus on Jesus. The letter is focused on who Christ is in all his glory. And the letter is focused on how the gospel alone is able to produce a desire for holiness in our hearts and transform our lives and actions. In Colossae, again, there was a group of false teachers who came in and said, you need to add these rituals, these legalistic rituals and rules to your Christianity. They didn't say Christianity was wrong. They didn't say it was bad. They, they said, look, this is part of Christianity. We need to just make it better. We want to pump it up a little bit. We want to make it a little more visible. We want to make it a little more powerful. So if you're a Christian, do this and it will make you more of an influence on those around you. So they said, "Here, here's a ritual. Here's a rule. Here's a tradition. Follow these And you'll be a better Christian. And Paul says no when he writes this letter. Paul argues in this letter that Christ alone is sufficient. Christ's work alone is sufficient to save our souls and purify our lives. Christ is the one who changes our motives and our actions. If we focus on him, if we dwell in him We will be changed outwardly. Look what verse 4 of chapter 1 says. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. He combines the two together. The love and faith that they have is a result of Christ. But the faith in Christ comes first. And it produces the love for the saints. He doesn't say, we heard of your love for the saints that helped you to believe in Christ. Now he says, we heard of your trust in Christ and the love that comes out of you. The evidence of his life in you. Paul, in this letter, is helping us to study the doctrine of Christ. It's Christology. Studying the doctrine of Christ will always, mark this, always produce changes in our lives if we truly believe in God's word. If you're a Christian. If you are a Christian, the more you study the doctrine of Christ, the more you will be conformed into his image. That is a promise. That is a gospel truth. It will happen. We will be conformed more and more and more into His image until finally one day, by the grace of God in glory, we will be completed. We will reflect Him perfectly in heaven. He wants us to be changed. Our changed lives bring glory to God's Son, to the power of Christ. That's what we rely on, is the, the life that Christ lived to change us and to be transforming in us the way we live. We don't trust in observing rituals or rules. We trust in the one who did that for us perfectly. We all know this here, I think. And yet we need to always come back and and remind ourselves of these foundational truths. Jesus lived in perfect, willing, passionate obedience to God the Father for us. It wasn't grudging obedience. It wasn't like us. I mean, if, if I told you, Here's what you have to do to make me happy, and I gave you ten rules, and you really want to make me happy. You might do those ten things, but you might be grudging me by the end of that that list. Not so with Jesus. All the commands and all the law that was given, Jesus looked at it and said, I want to magnify my Father in heaven by pursuing these perfectly to the end. All the way to the cross to become the Passover Lamb of God. He didn't go there grudgingly. He went there joyfully. Jesus, Paul reminds us of this throughout this letter, Jesus accomplished what Adam could never have done. A perfect man could never have done what Jesus did. Just a perfect man. But Jesus was much more than a man. He was the God-man. Jesus conquered temptation in a fallen world, not in a perfect garden in Eden. Jesus did what all of Adam's descendants have failed to do. Jesus lived a God-glorifying life, and he did so perfectly. And he died to pay our sin debt to God completely. Paul knew that if we focused on that truth, it would transform our lives. It would take our eyes off of these false doctrines and teachers who tried to intimidate and infiltrate the church and make us feel like we're less than a Christian because we don't have a new car in the name of Jesus. Or that we're not healthy and our kids are sick and we haven't claimed these promises and accepted our healing. So we're not really faithful Christians. Paul says, if you believe who Christ is, All those things will come to you in God's time, in perfection, in glory, the things that you need most. Paul knew that Christ exalting good works and a transformed life always follow the work of Christ in our hearts. Regeneration always leads to sanctification. That's the point. We know this. We know that Humility, true biblical humility, always follows the work of Christ in our hearts. A hunger and thirst for righteousness follows the work of Christ in our hearts. Mourning over sin follows the work of Christ in our hearts. Purity in heart follows the work of Christ in our hearts. Peacemaking flows and follows after the work of Christ in our hearts. And persecution also follows the work of christ in our hearts if you follow christ you will be persecuted and that's what was happening at Colossae. the christians all they had from epaphras was a simple gospel truth christ became man took upon our sins died our death rose from the grave and we are saved by god's grace alone then the false teachers flowed in said you poor poor christians You really don't have the right insights. We have these spiritual experiences. We have these mystical visions and thoughts that we can share with you that will show you how small your thinking is. Let me improve your Christianity, they said. And Epaphras obviously said, whoa. And persecution would flow out of that. The false teachers weren't coming in with pitchforks. They were coming in with the Torah. They were coming in with the Old Testament Scriptures. They were coming in with rituals that the people were familiar with. They were coming in with pagan ideologies and philosophies. And the, the culture said, yeah, these are pretty good. I've seen it work in these other religions. And the Epaphras says, no. And Paul says, no. So that leads us to the problem at Colossae, the second point. The problem is, is sort of explained and dealt with in chapter 2, verse 8. In Colossians 2, 8, and then 16 to 19, we see the Colossian problem and our problem today that we face in our world. In 2, 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Then in verse 16, it says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That's the harsh treatment of the body to make yourself holy. And the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up with reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head that is jesus from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from god i love verse 19 he says don't listen to the problem don't listen to the problem makers don't listen to the false teachers though they sound like they have wisdom and knowledge and visions and mystical experiences Follow Jesus. He's the head. He is the one who holds everything together. You don't need extra biblical revelation. You need Jesus. Hold fast to Him and Him alone. The Colossian heresy was built on something that we call synchronism. They were trying to synchronize pagan and Jewish religions with Christianity. The false teachers were not trying to supplant Christianity. They were trying to supplement Christianity. They would say Christ's work was good, but to be really holy, to be really strong, to be really spiritual, to be really blessed, you need to add to Christ rituals, mystical experiences, visions, angelic experiences. We see that today. This hasn't changed. This is still happening. It's Jesus plus this, or Jesus plus that. If you want to be a really faithful Christian, it's Jesus plus better economics. You know, it's Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that. Listen, if we get the doctrine of Christ right, you'll be a good steward. You'll know He's the Lord of your life and your money and your job. You'll see that in the Colossians letter. You'll work for the Lord. He is your master. If we get Jesus right, you'll be a faithful husband, a faithful wife. A faithful parent. That's in this letter. If you get Jesus right, you will be one who is a witness for the gospel of Christ without worrying about what other people think. That's in this letter. How did this problem occur in the church at Colossae? That's my question. I mean, they started out right, obviously. They had the gospel. It came from Paul through Epaphras to Colossae. How did this happen? Well, it happens the same way it happens here. The Colossian congregation was really no different than many churches today, right? Think about this. It was in a pagan city. Imagine a city that had not heard the gospel. They did not have a gospel presentation. The church is made up of this group of people from all different backgrounds. People from varying religious views. They were all brought in to a congregation. Not all of them were saved. Some were the way it is today, too. But some of the people who came in couldn't let go of what they were brought up in. They wouldn't let go of what they were brought up in. They brought their pagan superstitions with them. They brought their rituals. They brought their experiences into the church. And they tried to mix that with Christianity. That still happens today. It is so hard to let go of sacred cows. It is so hard to let go of things that you were grown up in being taught that this is essential, this is necessary, this is important. And then you come to Christ and you say, the Bible doesn't really say that these are necessary and important and essential, but man, I want to keep doing this because it's what I've always done. It's so easy. It makes sense. I've always done it. Mom and dad did it. And the Bible says you can't have this and Christ. You have to let go of one and follow the other. Some of the errors that they brought in, that are dealt with in this letter were basically this. We'll see them in, in Colossians 2. But some of the, the errors that they taught dealt with uh, rules relating to dietary and Sabbath observances, the worship of angels, mystical experiences, visions, and the practice of asceticism, which is, again, the harsh treatment of the body to, to reach a higher spiritual experience. You know what the Apostle Paul says about all this? He says, these are all worthless. All you need is Christ. Colossians 2.23 says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Martin Luther, before he was converted, when he was in a monastery, he took a a thing they used to use quite often in the monasteries. It had a little leather handle and straps, and they would use that to beat themselves whenever they would sin. And at one point, Luther locks himself. Luther understands there's a holy God, and he's an unholy man. And he hates God for that because he can't make himself holy, and he can't achieve God's righteousness so he decides one day, I, I've got to be righteous. So he locks himself up in a monastery in his room, and he starves himself, basically. And he takes that whip, and he beats himself with that whip so severely that he passes out in the floor, half-starved, beaten and bludgeoned and, and bloody. And he says at that point in his life, he had never experienced the depth of depravity in his mind than any other time. That was the worst he had ever been. He could not beat the sin out of himself. He needed one who would be beaten in his place. He needed to trust in Christ, in Christ alone. The, the false teaching that we see in Colossians is, I think, the seed of almost every false doctrine we see today. Because I can't say that this is Judaizers coming in. It's not. I can't say that it's pagans coming in because it's not. Actually, we can't identify the exact kind of false teaching that this is. And I think the reason for that is, is God wanted us to know that whatever the false teaching is, whatever the error is, there is only one answer, and it's Christ alone. It's having a proper Christology. If you get Christ right, you can deal with Jewish legalism. You can deal with oriental philosophies. You can deal with pagan astrology. You can deal with false mysticism. You can feel, deal with asceticism. You can deal with every religious error there is if you have the right doctrine of Christ. I think that's the point. I love how the Holy Spirit gives us this. This is like, this is like the prescription for the problem that we'll face no matter where we're at, no matter what culture, no matter what circumstances we see come into our lives. Whatever the error, if it's Jehovah's Witness, if it's the Mormons, if it's the Word of Faith, if it's the Oneness Pentecostals, the book of Colossians deals with their errors in some form or the other because it points out that Jesus is God, Jesus atoned for our sin, Jesus is the one who is master over our lives. This is a book about Christ. And if we love Jesus, we need to know this book. Because we want to magnify him. The church at Colossae was being diluted. It was being diluted by people who came in and took advantage of those who didn't have a sound theology about Christ. In Colossae, because of all these ideologies that would come in, basically what they had figured out was, hey, we can have something for everyone here. This will appeal to the masses. It sounds like certain circumstances we see today, right? Let's give just enough truth to sound Christian, but not enough to actually offend them. Let's actually bring in these other ideas that they'll all be happy with. Sounds like an Oprah Winfrey kind of religion. Everyone will love us. Everyone will speak well of us. They'll come in in the masses. Sadly, we see this happening in modern evangelicalism today. They were trying in Colossae to unite many different schools of thought into a composite religion. Again, that's called synchronism or syncretism, but it's not Christianity. The false teachers claimed they were not denying the Christian faith when they were confronted. They would say that they are simply elevating Christianity to a higher level to make it more accessible and more palatable for the masses. But the problem with their thinking was for them to to make it palatable and accessible, they had to devalue Christ's accomplishments. And they had to emphasize man's accomplishments, what man could do. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to weed that out of the church. It must be weeded out before it chokes out the truth about Christ and his accomplishments. I was thinking about that and thinking of different ways to illustrate that. And I thought, you know... There's probably one simple way, because he's, he's talking about weeding things out. So I'll talk about something having to do with gardens, okay? because we have to deal with weeds in gardens, right? But when you plant a garden, we all know this because of the fall, eventually weeds pop up, right? But sometimes, here's what's confusing, sometimes when you plant the garden early on, the weeds pop up along with the crop, and you can't tell the difference. You can't discern which one is good and which one is bad. Not until they begin to produce fruit. I mean, if it, was, if it was a cactus growing in an ivy garden, that's easy to see, right? I mean, if, if a false teacher comes in and says he hates Jesus, that's easy to see. But if he comes in and says he loves Jesus, but you need to do this, too. that's harder to discern. False teacher is more like poison ivy growing in an ivy garden. That's hard to spot. You really don't know you have it until you've got it, Right? When you eat up with it, you realize that's not an ivy. That's a poison ivy. And it must be eradicated. It must be taken out. That's why Paul writes the letter to the Colossians. He writes to help them discern the problem. To see the poison ivy amidst the other vines. But what I love is, he doesn't write this in such a way that he focuses on poison ivy. Focuses on false doctrine. He writes this... In such a way that he says, if you focus on the true vine, if you abide in the true vine, oh, you will identify poison ivy. Listen, if you're a botanist and you study vines, you can tell easily the difference between this kind of vine that's decorative and this kind of vine that's poisonous. I can't, but someone who studies that can. If you study Christ and focus on the true vine, you will see the poison ivy, when it pops up. That's what Paul's writing to help them to see. He's helped them to be aware of man-made religions by helping them focus on gospel truth about Christ and what he accomplished. That's why he writes. That's why we need to know this letter. Thirdly, let's look at the prevention. In Colossians 3, 1-4, we see how to prevent this kind of error In our church. Look what it says in Colossians 3. It doesn't say, study Mormonism, study the Jehovah's Witness doctrine, study all the false teachers of the world T.D. Jakes, Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer. It doesn't say, study them. Here's what he says here's how you prevent error in the church. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. Not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Seek the things that are above. Set your minds on the things that are above. Not on the things that are on earth. And I realize he's also talking about human depravity and sin and so forth. But listen. Listen. If we set our minds on Christ, we fix our minds on the doctrine of Christ. We study Jesus, not just for the the academics of it, but for the joy of knowing our Savior personally. If we set our minds on this, we don't have to focus on the errors around us. If we focus on Christ, we'll see the false teachers when they rise up. Paul Paul is attacking false teaching by focusing on the truth, not on the error. It can be dangerous to focus on the error all the time. You can become a very angry, bitter Christian looking out for the the boogers behind every bush. You know, I mean, you're, you're just always afraid and always, you know, skeptical and always, you know, stepping back from any kind of, you know, interaction with people because you don't know if they're the right or not you listen if, if you have the right doctrine of christ you don't need to be afraid of anything you need to stand firm in the faith resist the devil and he'll flee from you stand firm in the truth be confident in the gospel know the gospel love the gospel speak the gospel and you will have nothing to fear of those who deny the gospel That's the best way to expose and correct and prevent spiritual errors. Look at Colossians 2, 1 to 4. Paul writes this, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Here's a struggle, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach All the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He says, my desire is for you to be knit together in the doctrine of Christ the one who has given you full assurance that the treasures that he has obtained are yours. Know him, love him, proclaim him. Let no one delude you with plausible arguments. Listen, if you fall in love with Jesus according to his word, not this emotional lovey-dovey feel-good stuff that we hear on KLove, but I mean really love him according to his word. Know him according to his word. When the Jehovah's Witness come to your door, you don't have to be afraid of them. You don't even have to argue with them. You just say, I want to ask you one thing. Who do you believe Jesus is? Well, they give you their spiel. Say, now let me tell you who I believe he is according to his word. And stand firm. And When they don't listen, say, listen, folks, I love you. I'm concerned about you. But in the name of Christ, you must repent of this heresy and trust in the one and only Savior of men. Which is the man, Christ Jesus. We as Christians should know and understand these doctrines. We should know the work of Christ so intimately, so well, that when error tries to slip in, even the, the youngest Christian among us can see it, can identify it, and can say, I think that that's an error that could cause problems in the church. And the reason we need to do this is the same reason that Paul wrote this letter. False teachers try to pass themselves off as truth speakers. Not as heretics, not as evil men, but as good people. Preachers, teachers, conference speakers, motivational speakers. We need to identify them, though. We need to know the truth and be able to identify the counterfeits. That's how you identify the counterfeits. To identify something counterfeit, you must not focus on the counterfeit. You focus on the real. And in the book of Colossians, you have the greatest portrait of Christ you could ever imagine. Focus on this portrait. And when the, the co- counterfeits and the, the, the fakes come in, you'll identify them easily and quickly. They won't line up with this. The watermarks won't be the same. They will look different to you. You may not be able to figure it all out, but you know it's not the Jesus of Scripture. False religious systems, church, it's sad to say this, but this is the truth. False religious systems never go away. They simply rebuild themselves on their rotting bones. They continue to transform and evolve and adapt. And they learn to cleverly hide their wickedness by mixing it with bits of truth and selling it as Christian self-help. We see this all over the place today. And this happens because Satan knows that religion that elevates man's works plus Christ is the deadliest form of deception that there is. Man's pride loves to feel like he has contributed something to his salvation or his sanctification. But according to Colossians, any mixture of religion that dilutes or diminishes the work of Christ and his personhood By elevating man's achievements, man's abilities, man's rights, that's a deadly form of religion. And it is forbidden in Scripture. It's it's like this. In in Paul's opinion, that kind of thinking, that kind of mixture, is is this kind of mixture. It's like rat poison. Rat poison can be 95% edible and only 5% arsenic. But it's just as deadly. Just as deadly as this kind of thinking. That you can add man's achievements to Christ's. It will keep people from the kingdom of God. It will deceive. Depraved hearts. We see this throughout church history. It's so sad to see it though. But depraved hearts. Know they're guilty before a righteous God. Yet do not want to submit to his lordship or his rule. Or his... Revealed truth. They're eager to build complicated systems of religion, though. They'd rather do that than submit to the word of truth in Scripture. They'd rather gain a little glory for themselves, to their works, to their abilities, than to give themselves wholly to Christ. Sinful men love, as he points out in this letter, to chase shadows and philosophies rather than face the reality. But the reality and the truth is found only in Christ Jesus as he is revealed in God's holy word alone. Not through visions, not through angelic experiences, not through mysticism, not through rituals. The reality and truth about our salvation and our sanctification is found in Christ according to his word. Now here's, here's what I want you to remember this morning. We're not saying all this. I'm not saying all this. I'm not telling you to study all this so that you can run around and point out everyone's errors around you. Remember, you and I are going to meet many well-meaning people in our community who are under the spell of false teaching. Maybe our loved ones. I'm not telling you this so that you can go out and beat them up with truth. I'm telling you this so that you can have your eyes focused on their condition so that you can weep over them. So that you can reach out to them. That's one of the reasons we should study Colossians. Keep our eyes focused on Christ's sound doctrine, but not just for our sake, but for the sake of those that we love and relate to every day who need Christ instead of legalism or rituals. I think that the saddest passage of Scripture in the New Testament to me is reserved for those kinds of people. It's reserved for the religiously lost around us that we love and that we know Look what Matthew 7 says as I end this morning Matthew seven twenty one. this is the saddest words from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ I have ever heard and these are the words that people that you know and you love and you work with and you live with will hear one day If they do not repent of their sins and trust in Christ and let go of their self-righteousness, their ability to try to earn God's favor. Verse 21, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many... Circle that many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? There is the mystical experience people. And cast out demons in your name. There is the people who have visions of angels and do many mighty works in your name. There are the legalists. Verse 23 says, then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What are they doing? They are affirming, Jesus, you're Lord and you should let me into heaven because of what I've done. I cast out demons. I prophesied in your name. I had many mighty works that followed my life. They're appealing to Jesus based on their works, not on his. And these are people, these may be people, we know, who trust in their religious works, but not in Christ alone to save them and secure them. So I think that as we study Colossians, we need to pray. Pray that God will open their eyes before they hear Jesus say, I never knew you. Pray that God will keep our eyes focused on Christ and pray that God will keep our eyes Eyes filled with tears for the lost. We're not to be Pharisees. We're not to be self-righteous in our judgment of those who are in error. We are to weep for them. We are to go to them and reach out to them in the name of Christ.